Hey, everybody, and welcome to iFreaks. This week on our panel, we have Peter. Howdy from Texas. I'm Andrew in Salt Lake City, and we have a guest today. Our guest is David. David, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hey, uh, I'm David House. I'm uh, in Georgia, almost in Alabama, actually. <laughs> Georgia, almost Alabama. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, when people say Georgia, they think Atlanta, but uh, nope, I'm all the way west, almost sure. in Alabama. Cool. Well, I've never been to Georgia or Alabama, so it means nothing to me. Uh, <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I've been to Louisiana. That's as far sort of southeast as I've really been. Well, Miami, but I don't count that. That's not really the south. <laughs> Miami's its own thing. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Well, thanks for coming on, David. So you, um, you came on to talk to us today about kind of uh, a bunch of stuff that sort of falls broadly under the continuous, continuous uh, delivery, continuous integration sort of um, umbrella. Yep. And tell us a little bit about your experience with this. Why are you sure. here about? Um, yeah, I, I think also um, maybe just a, a little bit of background on my uh, iOS developer history. Been working, I've obviously been a developer. I guess that's not so obvious, but been a developer for quite a long time and uh, was able to get into the beta SDK for iOS, had an app on the launch day sort of failed miserably as an indie developer on the app store, uh, but I learned a, a lot of stuff and turned that into full-time job. I work right now for Kaiser Permanente. It's a healthcare company. And uh, so, you know, a lot of my uh, experiences and uh, the reason why I'm interested in this topic is related to the work we're doing at Kaiser. And, you know, we, we're, we're kind of a we're a big enterprise, so we have uh, a lot of employees that we build apps for, as well as members. We have we we actually provide healthcare. We're not just an insurance company, so I think our iOS app has um, you know almost a million users. Essentially, uh, we also have an Android app that matches its functionality. So uh, quite a big user base for this kind of app, and as well about 70,000 employees that, that use some of our apps. So our build needs and all of that stuff uh, is, is very unique to enterprise apps, maybe a little different from you know, folks who are building for the app store. Uh, we have an enterprise iOS license, so we're able to build apps that we can distribute in, internally. So uh, not only that, but the, um, you know, the, the the data that we're dealing with in our app is very sensitive. It's member data, their health records, their appointment list, messages to their doctor. So uh, sort of this whole experience I've had with this app has sort of led me down a few paths trying to, to figure out how to, how to scale you know, iOS development to, to a bigger team in very detailed you know, uh, work. So that's that's kind of what's driving a lot of um, where I'm going right now. I basically support our development team for this this main application for members. That team has over I think 30 developers on each platform, distributed across <laughs> three different uh, you know locations, two different continents. So uh, we have a lot of unique challenges. I think that you know maybe some of some of your listeners might be more you know. They have an app on the app store. It's a, it's a totally different kind of scenario than, than what we have. It's uh, pretty in-depth. Yeah, as somebody who started, I also, uh, I was a Mac developer before. And so when the iOS SDK was in beta, like, like every other Mac developer, I jumped on it. And um, 
I think the, the 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 Mac sort of the Mac development community back then was much uh, smaller than the iOS community. Way smaller than the iOS community is now. Um, but the point is, like nobody was. There were very few people who were doing this kind of work on Apple's platforms. The kind of work where you need um, really solid continuous delivery and continuous integration and uh, you know, nobody was doing unit testing. I never heard of anyone doing, <laughs> doing unit, unit testing back then on, on Apple stuff. Um, and that's just not true. And that hasn't been true for years now. There are people, people like you and, and, and other people who are doing iOS development, uh, making software that is quite critical. That's a critical part of people's workflow and their, you know, life flow, you might say, um, where you can't be quite so willy nilly and like fast and loose with how things are done. Uh, like you could in the old days, but I actually think this is still an area where a lot of uh, a lot of iOS developers, particularly maybe some of those that are that are that have not worked at a big company or have not worked at a um, on stuff that's quite this you know critical or 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 maybe business oriented, that don't really have the whole CI thing figured out. You know, they haven't done it yet, or they don't. You know, there's there's a lot here, and we'll dig into some of it. But there's testing, and there's uh, security value validation and there's um, the whole distribution piece of things, which is a challenge on Apple's platforms for various reasons. And there's enterprise stuff, which a lot of iOS developers never end up you know, working on enterprise apps. But when you do, some of that stuff becomes pretty important. I, I've done a little work just as a contractor on enterprise apps and you know, figuring out how in-house dis- distribution works versus just putting everything on the app store is, is um, something worth spending some time on. So I want to dig into all of that. Uh, Let's maybe start by um, by breaking down some terms. I think most of our listeners have heard these terms, but what do what does uh, CI continuous integration and CD continuous delivery? What do those mean, and what what are the differences between them? Yeah, that's actually a, a fantastic uh, sort of segue into this because, um, in in my opinion, the these two terms have kind of they they kind of mean one thing, but they really don't mean that as well, right? So. Uh, you know, kind of where these terms originated was not in a mobile context. So continuous integration is just the idea that you are integrating developer changes into the main code base of some some app or platform. And so the CI is that continuous integration of that, which just means, you know, in an automated fashion, I'm taking the code, making sure it can compile with the rest of the code, running tests, uh, just ensuring that the quality is is going to be there, whereas CD is your continuous delivery, which is okay. Well, now that the code is ready to be you know shipped out, how do we deliver that? Like, not that long ago, you know, uh, when we would have a new version of an app, there would be a, just a, a whole lengthy list of of manual steps: log into the database, run this command, uh, copy these files from one server to the other, you know unzip this file, run this app. So all those things, you know, we're like, well, that doesn't scale well. So uh, bringing them into an automated fashion into continuous delivery lets you deploy, you know, your code quickly. So that's really the, where those terms originated. And now we, we kind of use CI, especially as a generic term of just like some kind of automation thing that runs or uh, maybe some people just say, oh, that's Jenkins or that's Travis or Circle, Circle CI, it's in their name. So, um, but I think the, the, the thing really to, the thing I look at is uh, two, two parts of that. So the first part is the continuous part. So what we're saying is these practices that we want to put into place, we want them to happen on a regular interval. We want them to happen automatically. Um, whenever I have new code, whenever things are changing, I want those, those things to be, you know, uh, out there uh, automated. I don't have to think about it. They just run and I get notified when, when there's a problem. So that leads us to automation. So we have the continuous, we want these things to happen, you know, all the time, but we also want them automated, which means, you know, being able to compile your code, running Xcode build running your unit tests, your UI tests, uh, all those types of things. So uh, the, the, the whole concept of CICD now really is about figuring out the things you can automate and then running them continuously in your workflow. 
Do you think that, you know, there's a, it used to be that at the end of every day, there was always this kind of tradition that, you know, developers, uh, the build would take place. And if you broke the build, you know, you're not going home until you, you fix the build. And so do you feel that with the integration of these automated tools that constantly monitor the code, like say a repo or something like that, and they're watching the code base, do you feel that, you know, that's still the same philosophy now, or it's more a case of everybody just watch the reports and make sure that the build succeeds rather than immediately jumping on it and saying, okay, you know, we, we need to fix this right now, or do we wait till the next automation build takes place? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And I think what's happening and, and what I'm trying to get to is uh, away from things that take a long time or the delay, right? So uh, it's not just the daily build is broken or whatever. What about, you know, I introduce a code change and then weeks later, months later, some QA tester actually tests this release of the product, finds a bug. So there is a, there is a kind of, approach to that in the industry you might heard this term shift left uh, it's you know one of those enterprise terms that are silly sometimes but really that the ideal behind it is to shorten the time frame from when you write some code to when you get that feedback on uh, is this code good does it break something um, or you know whatever things you're tracking so uh, where I see us at right now and you know when we look at what GitHub is doing and really the rise, I think what I would call the rise of pull requests, right? So uh, back in the day, we would have this daily build that would sort of tell us if something was broken. And well, now we have this pull request, which is like, okay, I've made this change and now I'm going to present it to, you know, the powers that be uh, to, for inspection and, and to see if it's, it's a good change. And that's where we want that notification to happen. We don't want it to happen later in the day. We want it to happen right then in the PR so that our CI, our automation system will say, oh, hold up now. That code change you made just introduced these problems. So, you know, if you get that feedback in your PR, then the daily build sort of becomes irrelevant because you're getting that continual feedback every PR that's, that's happening. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point because, you know, quite often, you know, we've all been there where you, you put some code in, everything seems fine. And then a week later, you discover, oh, it's caused this bug, but we didn't run this test at the time. So having that automation in there that says, you may want to rethink about this, you know, I think has definitely become part of the regular workflow every day. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I, I think there's, a, there's an interesting thing that happens because to kind of initially when you start approaching this and you're like, well, now I got to create PRs for my work, especially maybe if you're just a one person developer, right? And then you're just working on your own little app project. You're like, no, I don't want to create PRs. That's a lot of extra work. I'm, I'm the one who would review it. So what does that really buy for me? And, and there is a little bit of a kind of a ramp up cost there, right? You've got to go, get through this tradition of, of creating your PR and, and pushing it, letting things run. Um, but once that becomes habit, then what you find is all of the, the worry that you've got about your change just goes away. So there's a lot of wasted time up here in our brains <laughs> of, you know, thinking about things, worrying about things. Um, and the more that you become sort of regular in your, this is, this is actually a life lesson, right? This is a life hack. The more you become regular and kind of knowing the, those kind of tedium, right? What am I going to have for breakfast? When do I wake up? Uh, what am I going to, what clothes am I going to put on? Like all of those things that you sort of get settled in life, then your brain instantly has more room for other interesting things like good ideas and creativity and, and those types of things. The same thing can happen here. Once you start building up this trust of your automation where you create a pull request, it's running your unit tests and it's uh, maybe running some integration tests against your server or other types of tests that we can talk about. Once you start getting in that routine and you have that rhythm, then your brain isn't thinking about any of that anymore. You're thinking on the next thing you're working on or, or that. And another example is just when it comes to deploying, like the most 
frustrating thing I ever had, especially in the early, you know, Apple development was just publishing the app to the app store. I mean, those early days on the app store was like, you know, some mystical, you know, power what needed to be invoked. Like I need to make a sacrifice to get this application loader app to fully upload my app. And if it failed, you know, I have to consult some, some spirits to see why it failed. Right. So if you can automate that where you just hit a button and you say, okay, this is good. And all that stuff just happens in the background, you're free to go do something else that's fun and not have to, to worry about. Yeah, I think that that's a really important point that you hit on there because, you know, that's the other thing too is not only is it for teams, but even as a single developer, in fact, maybe more so as a solo developer, you know, you have all of these worries and these concerns and all of this, this heavy load that you have to carry, like, you know, pushing up to the app store, checking these five boxes every time. So if you can abstract away those concerns and just say, I've got this covered, and like you say, you know, I like the idea of now I can focus on the bits that make the app the app, you know. And so I think that, like you say, you know, even as a solo developer, that is so important. And perhaps, you know, arguably even good training so that one day if you become a member of a team as opposed to solo, you're already going to be familiar with a process that's probably already been used by a company. Yep. The thing that I believe most about top-notch developers is that they're constantly learning. Whether you're out watching videos, whether you're reading blog posts or books, whether you're out writing open source software, you're always out there learning how to be a better developer. And my friends at Thinkster and I teamed up and we put together a show called the DevEd Podcast. You can find it at devedpodcast.com. It's run by Joe Eames, who you might know from JavaScript Jabber, Adventures in Angular, and Views on View. And they have terrific conversations about what it means to become a better developer, to learn how to do development, and the ways that you can learn. So if you're looking for inspiration and ideas about how you can do better and learn better as a developer, then go check out the DevEd podcast. I, I kind of liken um, when, when you start to get into automating your workflows and, and you know, setting up those tasks, uh, it, it's a little daunting because you got to learn new tools and it takes some time. But I liken it very much to how they say when you teach something, that's when you actually learn it better, right? So when you have to go out there and, and teach somebody how to do something, you know it better. So that's why I think, um, you know, people should learn some of these techniques, try them out, experiment, because you're going to learn so much about the whole process uh, that it's, it's really good for you. Even if you don't, you know, even if you kind of use one of the, the systems that's out there, you know, long term, going through the process manually of running Xcode build, figuring out how to sign the app from the command line and do a lot of those things, you're, it's just really going to give you a lot of good knowledge that will save your butt one day when you're, you know, dealing with some kind of problem and you're like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, why that might be happening. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I, I know it's one of the, the yearly pains that I go through even with, you know, some of the automation systems is, you know, renewing those certificates that we, we all have to go through and, you know, being able to have a process in place that's a case of, okay, make sure my build machine has all the right credentials, certificates, they've all been updated once we renew them, as opposed to having to check that, say, five or maybe 10 developer machines have all the right certificates. You know, being able to trust that one that one build system, be it a distributed or, you know, just a, a Mac mini in the corner of the office, something like that is so reassuring to know that, okay, I, I've fixed it for another year, you know, along with, like you say, you know, Jenkins, something like that. It's a case of if it's broken, at least it's only broken in one place and I have to go look at it there. Yeah. I, I actually feel really strongly that, no matter who you are, no matter what size team or, or developer, don't sign and do all that stuff, submit to the app store from your one developer machine. Uh, I think that's a, a big mistake um, because, well, first of all, it's just so easy in Xcode to click the wrong button and delete something or uh, just things tend to get more confused and changed on your developer machine and having a dedicated machine somewhere, make it an old laptop or something, uh, where you have more control over those changes. And then, you know, 
go through the process of manually getting your certificate, getting your profile, installing it on the machine, and uh, don't just download it from Apple, look at the contents. Uh, so it's amazing. I mean, you know, a lot of the pain points early on were just, well, it failed to sign. I have no idea why. It didn't even tell me why it failed. It just said, sorry, can't. <laughs> you know, the, the errors are getting a lot better from Exco build and, and the signing process, which is a good thing. But I think also there's a lot of details in those actual certificates and profiles that you can look at. Uh, there's tools out there that let you look at what, you know, what is the expiration date of your certificate and what's its ID. Same with the provisioning profiles. And you can compare, does this profile match that certificate? So those types of sleuthing, if you will, you know, um, really can, can make a difference in uh, fixing problems as opposed to just, oh my gosh, it doesn't sign and I have no idea, you know, where to even start. So those are good skills to kind of put into your bag of tricks. Um, just look at those files because the, the ironic part about all this, even though I guarantee you, I can go to every single iOS developer and ask them, have you ever had problems with, <laughs> with signing? And they will all say yes. Um, the irony is that really isn't that difficult. You know, like there's, it's not that many different pieces in play, but it's the lack of some error messaging on one hand from the tool and then just a lack of kind of knowledge. We just download a file, we put the file in the keychain. we don't know what's in there. So you can solve part of that with knowledge and then the other part is getting better over time. So you'll, you'll find, um, and, and the other thing I would say, one last thing on this, this topic is, you know, Xcode has done a lot of good things to make uh, some of this easier with the automatic signing, but that's not a silver bullet, okay? So it's still good to understand what's happening underneath and even, you know, for your actual signing, just still use manual signing for that. Um, you know, your mileage may vary and you might get really far with the automatic signing, I'm good with it, but it's still good for you to understand and, and use manual. Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that's a good point because I know from my own personal experience, I've been there. Um, you know, you have this problem where suddenly the, the automatic signing fails for you and it's, you know, 11 o'clock at night and you've got to get the build in the store to start the process of, you know, Apple looking at it and you're sitting there thinking, well, what do I do now? Because my tool is, can't fix this for me. And do you feel that sometimes you know, people rely on automated systems as a way to say, great, I don't have to learn this because this is going to take care of it for me. And then when something does go wrong, you realize, you know, kind of that hindsight of, yeah, I probably should have learned this too so that I can help the system rather than just totally rely on the system. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So you should treat this automation system as like a minion, you know, like you've created a robot that will do your bidding, but you should understand all the things that robot is going to do, <laughs> right? So it's, it's, it's to get you out of the tedium of doing those things yourself, but having an, a knowledge of it. Um, and again, for the most part, I think the, the actual commands and the steps that you have to do to sign your app, distribute it, run unit tests, do a lot of these things are fairly trivial. You know, they're, they're straightforward. They can be learned. And again, it just gives you a better breadth of knowledge later when, when, you know, when stuff goes down and you need, and you need that, that knowledge, it's, it's good to have it and not just sort of be staring. Cause I almost can guarantee you it will fail on that Friday when you're trying to deploy. That's, that's, it's just the law of the universe that it's probably going to fail when you need it most. I, yeah, I, that's been my experience. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. Um, about tools. Uh, there are a lot of CI tools out there. Uh, the number of them has grown and is growing. Um, what, what tools have you used, David? Yeah, I think I've used quite a few of them. Um, we have uh, Jenkins here at, at Kaiser that we've had for a long time, uh, although we're moving away from that, which I can talk a little bit about. Um, but since then, I've used Travis, I've used Circle, uh, Bitrise.io, which I think they've got a lot of good stuff. 
And then uh, recently I got into the beta for GitHub Actions, which I think uh, also provides a lot of unique features. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there. And as with most things mobile related, you know, we're still in the early, <laughs> believe it or not, right? iOS is, or iPhone's been out for quite a while, but we're still in the early days, especially with tools. So um, there, there will be more coming up, but you know, right now I feel if you are going to start out, BitRise is a great option because there's this very visual and kind of, I think, easy for beginners in a lot of ways. Um, GitHub Actions will be good once it's released. It's just still in beta. And the nice thing about GitHub Actions, I think, is going to be the community because, of course, GitHub is built on, you know, open source ideals. So this is the same way. So all the things built in GitHub Actions are uh, open sourced to the extent where people can create their own types of actions and share them with others. So, uh, so that's good. Uh, for, the, for the record, BitRise is also open source as well. So you can run BitRise yourself on your own system if you so choose. Yeah, uh, Jenkins is kind of the, I'm going to say 800-pound gorilla. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, it's been around forever. Um, started out as a Java thing. I mean, it, it, it has its roots in the Java world. But it's definitely, and it's very powerful, very customizable. But it's definitely sort of the, if you want to spend, you know, if, if you have reason to and, and the ability to spend a lot of time on your own configuring and maintaining, you use Jenkins. Um, if your needs are kind of simpler or you're just starting out, some of these hosted solutions like the ones you mentioned probably make more sense. Um, what, what, I'm I'm curious to know what you've found are some of the reasons that you might want to actually just go the full Jenkins on your own server route. Well, again, I think it, it it's back to what you're talking about. It's been around for a long time and it does give you more control, right? So the the clouded the cloud hosted solutions, they've done a good job at figuring out what are the common things that you'd want to do. Uh, and creating builds and uh, like BitRise is a good example of this where uh, they've got some pretty nice UI for most of the common things we do. When you want to go off the rails though, then you know you might want a lower level. So it's kind of like languages, right? It's Jenkins is more like the C or assembly version of CI and then uh, some of these you know nicer BitRise is maybe more like uh, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm going to be careful and <laughs> not offend anybody, but you know, it's a more higher level language, right? Um, so that's kind of the difference. Now, uh, as to Jenkins though, I think uh, it's definitely getting, in my opinion, long in the tooth. And it's one of those things that has sort of, it's been around forever and oh yeah, it's just sort of a de facto for a lot of people, but uh, hopefully there's new stuff on the rise uh, that I may or may not be working on that we can give out there to to give some more options because we need more options uh, for kind of self-hosting, self-building your own setup because not everybody's going to be able to use GitHub Actions. Not everybody can use BitRise. Um, at where in, in our environment, you know, we have to run most of our stuff not in the cloud because we're a healthcare company. Uh, you know, there's there's laws around certain data protections and things like that. And just as a company culture, we don't have a lot of things running in the public cloud. We have private clouds, so we have to choose options that run in private clouds. So uh, our needs might be certainly different than a lot of other folks, but that's that's sort of what I what I feel like we need is a few more options to sort of even out the spectrum. Like you said, you know, you've got some hosted solutions that do a lot of great things. And then, you know, sort of, if you go beyond that, most people are just going to choose Jenkins because that's what's there, but we need more things in that little space. You, you touched on something there that I think is something that always comes up in discussion, which is security. And with a lot of these systems, if we, you know, companies like to run things in house because it's, it's on our servers, it's in our network, we can protect it. But then at some point, because of the nature of our business, we have to reach out to at least the app stores. And so how do you feel that, you know, security is addressed by a lot of these? Uh, you know, for example, I have, you know, experience with Jenkins and, you know, it's great because like you say, we can run our own install and, and everything's there. But at some point we have that leap of faith out to the cloud that 
everybody else's security is in place. So, you know, how does that come into play from a standpoint of making sure that, you know, our code stays protected, whether it's on our cloud and then moved out to somebody else's, or like you say, maybe a private cloud. Is that something that you feel has been getting better over time and that these services like Bitrise, for example, um, you know, are very conscious of that. And, and so do you feel that companies and services monitor this and they, they focus as much on the security side as they do providing the, the ease of use and services? Uh, you know, that's a difficult question, really, because we only have the luxury of looking on the, the, from the outside in, right? And security is one of those things where, uh, you know, even with all of the layers of security and many protections, you still might have an issue. So uh, I, I can't say, right, like how they've, they're focusing their teams. Um, it, is, it should always be something that is in the back of our minds and that we're thinking about and looking at who is out there. Um, clearly, if one of these cloud-based services has a problem, we're gonna know about it, right? People are gonna talk, be talking about the code that has been you know, exposed or, or hijacked in some way. So that's the main thing, you know, from, a, from a user point of view, I guess this is kind of the general concept for security, right? Is, uh, look at what is happening in the industry, what you hear from people talking about from, you know, privacy and security, see what things are being breached and, and go with, you know, the more trusted things you can go with, I guess, is sort of all we can do in a way. Uh, I mean, we talk a lot about Apple and their commitment to privacy and they've done a great, they have a great track record there, right? Even they can be hacked. I mean, it's not like it's impossible. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's look for vendors who you trust and that have a good reputation. I think that's the best we can do. Um, I think it has gotten better, but at the same time, um, maybe we just don't know about those, those problems yet. For me, the key is really understand what's happening. Uh, so the worst thing you can do is um, just use a system and there'd be some kind of breach and you're like, oh, I didn't even know it was getting my source code and copying it to the server to compile it. I didn't know that was what happens. So, you know, kind of fill, fill yourself with knowledge about how something works so that you, you understand that, you know, uh, you, you know, oh, this is why I have to give this cloud service GitHub app permissions, right? And what do those permissions mean? So uh, arm yourself with knowledge is probably a quote from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, you know, like you, you mentioned, a lot of these services, um, you know, they, they go open source. So it is nice because, you know, they essentially they're saying, hey, if you feel there may be an issue or you have this question, please feel free to dive into the source code and, and look for yourselves. So, and I think that that's, you know, something that's always important as well because, you know, we always trust a lot of third-party libraries and all this kind of thing. And for me, I feel like the, the build tools become part of that third party system, right? And so being able to dive into the source code for some of those uh, is a nice way to feel secure, you know, or to maybe identify weaknesses and then hopefully do the right thing and go back to the company and say, hey, we, you know, are you aware of this? Something like that. Um, so I think that open source is, you know, it's another win right there. Anytime you have a closed system, you are sort of, I don't want to say blindly trusting, but you, you, you have to take it on, on surface value. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, at least from the, the standpoint that you might not look at the source code and you might not understand what's going on, but if it is open, there's a community of people who somewhere out there, somebody is probably looking at it. And at the very least, when a problem does happen, they can analyze it and figure out the extent of the, you know, the leak or damage or or whatever so knowledge about what happens unlike some of the closed systems where you know something happens and we're like why did that happen nobody knows you're not telling us right right yeah one of my favorite communities to get involved with these days is the angular community there are so many great people there we've had a lot of them on adventures in angular over the last several years and I really wanted to just highlight people and give you a chance to get to know the flavor and the feel of being around some of these awesome people. 
we've talked to people on the Angular Core team. We've talked to people who have organized the conferences. We've talked to some of the co-hosts that I've had on Adventures in Angular. Nowadays, Aaron Frost is running the show and he's doing the same thing. Typically, he's been doing it at conferences lately, which is a lot of fun. But you get to hear what these people are about and why they care and how they get involved with other people in the Angular community. So if you're looking for that connection in the Angular community and a way to really understand the people who are involved in the Angular community, then go check out My Angular Story. You can find it at myangularstory.com. One of the, maybe I'm just wrong about this, but it does seem to me that there's not as much um, good educational material out there for this stuff as there is for some of the other sort of aspects of iOS development. Uh, and I, I've done, I've actually done a fair amount of this CI, CD stuff for Mac and iOS myself. Um, and certainly for me, it's been a process of trial and error and, you know, stack overflow and, and the usual without any kind of like great resource to kind of start from scratch and teach you how to do it. I wonder if I'm wrong about that. Do you know of any resources that are out there that are pretty good or? I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, it is, it is a big limitation, I think, in, in our community of knowledge, um, you know, when I look at what's out there right now for like Swift and Swift, even Swift UI, which is just brand new. I mean, literally days after it comes out and there's videos and there's blog posts and there's information. Um, and when it comes to a lot of this automation stuff, it, yeah, it's, it's lacking tremendously. And um, it, it, this kind of gets into an area where what I find really common is CI failures become a pretty big obstacle for adoption where you've you set up your project it's running on circle or travis or or some system and it fails and then you go to there you look at the logs and you're trying to figure out why did it fail and then oh maybe you find a problem maybe you don't maybe it's just you're like uh okay there's this you know error 65 which happens, right? And you're like, you Google that on Stack Overflow and you're like, oh, oh, maybe I should try this. And so you end up in this pattern of like, you know, trying the 50 different things until the build goes green. And after a few times of that, then you really start to lose the trust in that system. And you're like, you know what? This just isn't even worth it. And the truth about it is you're right. <laughs> it's not worth it because you're, you're spending a lot of your time fixing a problem that you're not even sure you understand. It's not well documented. And so I think that's still, that's where we're at right now. Uh, and that's what we've got to overcome to get to sort of the next level of, of these CI systems is, and I, I think part of it is exactly what you're saying, more uh, community knowledge about how these things work and how to do the builds and you know, where to go for problems and then for the systems to be more sensitive to that issue and give you more feedback to what has happened. Okay, my build failed, but if you know that it ran unit tests and some unit tests didn't pass or something, tell me which ones that didn't pass, right? Uh, it's as simple as that. Don't just say, oh, red dot, right? Uh, a failure, I don't know what happened. No, tell me what happened. So that's, that's where I want to see the, the, these systems go next is really rich feedback for success or failure. That way we can really build more trust and more knowledge. Um, but uh, definitely I think we need more resources for, you know, beginner, I've never done anything with CI and automation before to learning a lot of the basics of how Xcode build works, what common things you might run into, et cetera. Yeah, I think, you know, that reminds me of a, you know, a, a time when I first got introduced to this, this kind of approach and, you know, my first introduction to Jenkins and I, I took over a system and I was like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And so everything was going great and then something went wrong and I, I was like, okay, you know, being the developer that I, it's like dived into the logs and the logs, you know, not to pick on anything in particular, but, you know, I was going through and it was Jenkins, Jenkins, and then it was the fast lane part. And it said, um, you know, it was clear that this was the error. Well, this is where it was happening. But all the error said was, you may want to update fast lane. And, you know, you're sort of staring at this thinking, well, that's great. But 
that doesn't tell me what's really going on. So I think you're right because I, I remember the frustration of, you know, reaching out and, you know, you're frantically Googling and everything else. And a lot of the time you get to those situations where it's like, okay, I found other people having the same problem. And yeah, did anyone find the solution? And so, you know, this is definitely an area where, yeah, I agree. I, I think like Andrew said, you know, we need a lot more, um, resources out there that that help to solve these problems because a lot of the the tutorials and the courses and everything else you find it's it's always that happy path of you'll do this you'll do this and everything can work out great and nothing ever stops and says but when it doesn't this is what you should do yeah no absolutely and the truth is like a successful job on an automation system is the least interesting thing right because well, it was successful. It did what you wanted it to do. Uh, so we don't really care about those. So the only things, the only time when you have to interact with these systems is when there is a failure. <laughs> so those really need to be more, uh, you know, more detailed, more, and, and, you know, there's lots of opportunities, I think, for crowdsourced knowledge of, oh, if this error code happens or this message in the log from Xcode 10.3, then it's this problem. So um, that's where we should probably go with it. And, and I think people will start to adopt it even, even more. Do you feel like, you know, just recently I was, you know, sort of my, my frustration with some of the build systems that we use. And then, you know, I was like, okay, well, there's this thing called, you know, there's these Xcode bots, you know, and do you have any experience or, or any thoughts on that? Because I sort of went down that path and, you know, Apple being Apple, I found this like, wow, this is, they've actually made this very straightforward for me. It was like, go here, we do this. Would you like us to take care of that? And afterwards I was like, this is, this is how it should be. I was walked through the whole process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny that we didn't even mention Xcode bots before. Um, I, I think it's a typical Apple, you know, um, it has got a pretty good experience overall. When things go wrong, I think it is less useful. And certainly in some earlier versions of Xcode bots, they were very limited. So, and I think that is, is still even true. So if you want to build a, a really comprehensive uh, system, an automation system, uh, Xcode bots is going to sort of leave you uh, hanging a bit and you're going to find uh, it difficult. Uh, even, a you know, for a while, it couldn't even do like a PR build. So, you know, uh, it, it's going to get better, hopefully, and they'll, they'll continue to put some resources into it. And um, it might be an option, you know, I think for simple things where you just, you've got an extra Mac at your, your, your location and you, you know, you can kind of control that, then I think Xcobots is, is a good option for you to try. I just think you're going to, you're going to run into limitations with it at some point in time. I kind of, it, it, it feels like it's early days for that still. But it's, it's one of those where, you know, it's because it's got that, that Apple feel to it. It's one of those like, gosh, maybe if I come back in a couple of years, this could be a really fluid system for someone who wants to get into, you know, CICD, but perhaps doesn't either understand or want to get involved with the real nitty gritty part is, you know, great. If I can do this in Xcode, I get to stay in an environment where I'm comfortable and feel safe. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, I know sometimes, you know, we, we dive out to the terminal and you start typing all these things and, you know, these logs fly past and it's like, what just happened? Because I feel like I should know in case it doesn't happen next time, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of the beauty of Xcode in some ways, right, is, you know, as complicated as a tool as it is, it abstracts away some of that complication and just says, you know, I'll bother you if something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but then... There are times when things do go wrong and the tool itself, you know, is limited in what it's, what they've built it to do. So, so yeah, I think it can get you uh, to a certain point and it's certainly better than running the builds on your own machine <laughs> from Xcode. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great product and, and I agree with you on one thing for sure, like the user experience and, and, sort of how it works, um, how they, how you set up projects and stuff is very good. So we need more of that, but uh, like a lot of things, you know, what I like are systems that have that 
nice uh, layer on top of a great user experience. And then when something goes wrong, I can, I can pull back that layer and, and still, you know, go in there. That's why like the new Mac pro is like, yes, this is my dream machine. It's actually a Mac, but I can open the thing up and look inside and oh, there's actually slots. Right. So right. that's, that's what I, what I want out of these kind of systems is that ability to, yeah, I want it to look great and then function great from the outside, have a great user experience. Tell me when things are, you know, the information I need to know when something goes wrong, but you know, when things come down to it, I want to, I want to open it up and be able to look down at the nitty gritty details. Cause sometimes that's just where you got to go. I'd argue that I'd argue that just in general for software um, that's meant to help people get things done, that kind of a philosophy makes for the best software. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so we're getting getting close on time. Uh, we've I'm sure there's a lot of lot more stuff we could cover, but is there anything that you think we just need to get in before we finish? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't talk for days about this stuff, um, and we didn't even cover almost anything in my <laughs> my original points. Um, I think the the thing to think about is um, back to the the one main point I made, which is the more things that you can automate and kind of get into your workflow really make a difference. They seem like they're, it's gonna take a little bit of work to get there and you've gotta learn new things and, and all that. But once you have them in place, once you have a single button where you press it and it can do all the stuff to deploy an app, it's, it's like magic almost. It, it just, it can really help your productivity even. And uh, again, they're just good tools to learn that way when you get in the heat of battle, you know, you know what you need to do. But this is, it's a really deep topic and there's a lot of things we can, we can do with it. And also it's one of those topics where it's almost individualized, right? Like find the areas that are your pain points and try to automate and, and work on those things first, because clearly it's a pain for you it may not be a pain for others. So focus on those things. Don't just look at all the CI stuff and figure that you've got to do it because everybody else does. You, you don't find the things that are, that matter most to you. And then, you know, start there. Great. I think that's a, a good way for us to wrap up. Let's get to our picks. Peter, do you have any picks for us? I do. And actually, it's one that, that I dive in more often than, than maybe healthy. Um, so we actually use Jenkins as our build system. So I'm actually going to go ahead and choose the, the, uh, the plugins index for Jenkins because there are so many great plugins that you can you can use to automate out a lot of the you know a lot of the, the process that you have to go through even things like uploading to hockey app for example and you know just having that plugin right there to to make it easy for you so i'm actually going to go with the, the plugins for jenkins great thank you david do you have a pick for us yes i do actually so um this is actually both a website and also sort of just a style. So if you just Google uh, Gitmoji, G-I-T-M-O-J-I, there is a GitHub repo for this. It's open source and also a website that uh, Carlos has put together. And essentially what this is for GitHub, you can put um, an emoji in your commit message and it will be rendered correctly in the GitHub UI. So you can use this for, um, you know, your commits to indicate kind of what's in that commit. Maybe this is a bug fix. Maybe it's a, um, an update to the release notes or uh, you're refactoring something or you're uh, working on your Jenkins, you know, file, all those. Uh, so it has an emoji for a, like a lot of different common development scenarios. And uh, it's kind of interesting because it does make you think about your commit and what's in it. So you kind of end up with simpler commits because you want to get the right emoji for it. And that ends up being a great thing in, in overall. So um, we're, we've been adopting this as a team and I think it's been pretty, pretty fun. Are you actually using the Gitmoji command line client that they have? Uh, we don't use it, but yeah, I have seen that as well. Um, I haven't really dived into it too much to see if it makes the flow better. Uh, I've just memorized all the main ones that I use and uh, it goes, it goes pretty easy. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, colon and then a name and another colon. So they're pretty easy to learn. 
Very cool. Thank you. I have two picks today. Uh, my first pick is the Mac, the Mac OS human interface guidelines. I hope that all of us that are, you know, that are listening or on this call have seen human interface guidelines before. They exist for iOS as well. Uh, they actually have a very long history at Apple dating back to the, to the early days, to the eighties at least. Um, and they are Apple's documentation about what makes an iOS app a great iOS app from a UI standpoint, what makes a macOS app a great macOS app from a UI standpoint. And the reason I'm picking this is because with the release of Catalina and Catalyst, uh, we have a bunch of iOS developers who have maybe never made a Mac app before and now have a chance to uh, port over their iOS app with a lot less trouble than they might've had in the past, and which is great. Uh, but the truth is that what makes a good iOS app is not the same as what makes a good Mac app. And so I hope that those of us that are working on this will make it a point to learn, you know, what, what needs to be different in, in the Mac version of your app versus the iOS app. And then, you know, really work to do that. And I've already seen a few examples of people who have used catalyst to bring their iOS apps over and spent some time getting this right. And the results are, uh, they're very noticeable. You can really tell the difference between an app where somebody has done this and one where they've more or less checked the box in Xcode and called it good. Um, so that's the human interface guidelines for Mac OS, uh, updated today, by the way, which is what reminded me, um, updated to add the new NS switch control, which is new in Catalina. And my second pick is actually a blog post that I wrote that I think is sort of, um, in many ways, kind of a, Oh, uh, cousin to some of the stuff we've talked about today. It's called infrastructure and it's all about, um, experience that I had with a Mac app, uh, specifically, where some of the sort of manual tasks that I was having to go through every time I wanted to release an update were actually impeding my progress on, you know, making the app better. And so I took some time out to automate some things, to streamline some processes, um, basically to make it so that it, uh, releasing a new update was as close to, you know, one or two clicks as I could get. Um, and it really improved my productivity and my mental state because there's something to be said for like, working on a new feature and then just not wanting to have to slog through all of the manual work to actually get it out to people. And when you make that really quick, it's more fun to work on things. So I sort of detail some of the stuff I did and some of the tools I came up with. And um, some are more relevant to iOS than others, but I hope it'll be interesting to some people. Those are my picks. Okay. Thanks so much, David, for coming on and talking to us about continuous integration, continuous delivery, and, and sort of more broadly just automating the painful things. If people want to get in touch with you or follow you, what are some of the ways they can do that? Yeah, so um, probably Twitter is the best way. David A. House at on Twitter. Um, you can also poke around my GitHub. Uh, there are probably some new things related to CI/CD coming out on GitHub in the next month or so. Uh, so that's another option. Very cool. And we will have links in the show notes. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.